You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com. Just because you see what he shows. G'day, everyone, and welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I am your host, Warwick Schiller, and I have got a treat for you today. If you're a regular podcast listener, and you feel like these podcasts have been uh, full of amazing conversations, well, this one will not disappoint. This is probably, this conversation with today's guest contains some of the most profound things I've ever heard and the most profound things I've heard on, on this podcast. So um, I can't wait for you to listen to this. So today I'm talking to a, a lovely lady named Christine Dixon, and she is a transformational mentor, clinical hypnotherapist, an equine-assisted coach from Los Angeles. And um, I met Christine a few years ago at a horse expo, probably five, maybe five or six years ago now. And she's since come to several clinics uh, to watch. And recently she she came to a clinic I did in LA and we got to chat afterwards quite a bit. And she had some amazing stories to tell. So I thought, I, I really need to get you on the podcast she actually is, if you listen to the podcast with Dr. Will Sue, she's actually the one that introduced me to Will. So she, we've got that to thank her for as well. But I'll just read a bit of her bio here. It says, Christine works with people to map out their vision and reframe their limited belief systems to create radical shifts in their lives. She has a solid background in working with people moving away from addiction and codependence and supporting their quest to align with their life purpose. Her ideal client is a fellow traveler, who has come to a crossroads and dares to pursue a more purposeful life. A self-described late bloomer, she travelled a slow but steady path to rewrite her subconscious conditioning and take responsibility for her own life. By becoming more self-aware and intentional, she was able to propel herself into taking meaningful action that changed the course of her life. Now she helps others do the same. What does your heart long to bring forth into the world when that small inner voice whispers to you, what you know to be true. Do you listen? That's what it says on her website. And um, yeah, I can't wait for you to listen to this podcast. It blew me away. I just recorded it today and I can't wait for it to come out so I can actually sit and listen to it again because there was uh, such profound wisdom in this, in this. I was just yeah totally blown away and I'm sure you will be too. Christine Dixon, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. I cannot even put into words how delighted I am to be here. I think I've had 25 podcasts with you in my mind in the last few days. So let's just do one for real. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it for real. Now, I'm looking, I'm so looking forward to this. You know, oh, we've had some, we haven't had a lot of conversations. Um, you know, we've had a little bit of interaction recently at a clinic in LA. We kind of hung out afterwards and for both days actually and chatted quite a bit and I was like oh my god this lady needs to be on the podcast you have so many amazing stories to tell um but I met you at a horse expo in Pomona yes 2017 I think it was yeah is that when it was mm -hmm. um 
And it, because we're in LA, I actually thought you were an actress. You look, yes, you, you look did. A lot, <laughs> you look a lot like, what is that lady's name? Kim She's Dickens. Kim Dickens. Kim, yeah. Kim Dickens, and your name's Christine Dixon. And, you know, when we met, I'm like, she's an actress but yeah well that was the um, funny thing because i walked up to your booth and you were like hey and i was like looking behind me and i was like oh hey, he's really I've friendly seen <laughs> i've seen you in deadwood yeah yeah that was a funny conversation it was a funny conversation and then you uh, you came to a clinic in arizona yes a couple of years ago i chat we chatted with you there a little bit and then I think we've I've run into you uh, uh, one other time. And then when you came to the clinic recently, we we got to chat some more because you are the amazing person who introduced me to Doctor Will Sue. So you know that was actually kind. Of, we can actually probably talk about that. Sure. So Will was on the podcast before. He's a um, I don't know. Would you call him a a specialist in? Yeah, he's a psychiatrist who specializes in um, yeah using psychedelics in healing. Uh, and I'd actually, I got to LA early on the, the the Friday, the day before the clinic lunchtime. So I went to actually drove over to Will's house. We went down. He lives at Venice Beach, and so he took me for a bit of a tour around Venice Beach, walking around. That that's an interesting, uh, an interesting area. You know, that's if anybody from around the world has ever seen like on TV or whatever Muscle Beach in mm-hmm. California. That's where it is. It's at Venice Beach. So yeah, I spent the afternoon chatting with Will and. Talking about different things, and uh, he actually—I invited him out to the clinic the next day, and he sat with you during the clinic. And yeah, you could—I mean, you could probably tell the story of what went on his head. But you told me by about eleven <laughs> o'clock he had to go home and take a nap because his mind was like there was the clinic was kind of cool because what was going on with some of these horses was some of these horses were were non-communicative like there was one there that was very quite shut down had been a former western pleasure horse and the lady said i can't get him to move like he's got like i can't get him to go ask him to move on the ground easily like it's like you know beating a dead horse with a stick sort of thing not that she was beating the horse and she also said Oh, he kind of doesn't show anything like he's got no itchy spot. Like he won't show me an itchy spot. And after a little bit of messing with him, I had his head turned upside down, his top <laughs> lip curled back on. Oh, my God, that's the coolest itchy spot ever. And then I started working on asking him to move. And pretty soon I could get him to almost move off my energy. And what was cool was Will got to see all that. And, uh, yeah, maybe you can tell me what you guys were chatting about while that was going on. Well, what was really – I think that one of the things that Will – does which I do when I go to your clinics too is that there's always the correlation between what you do with the horses and what you do with people or what the issues with people are so I think that he was looking at it a lot too from the standpoint of what was that horse's owner going through in that moment and what were they and what and how does what you do with the horses also translate to people and energy and you know the whole thing with that was you going you were just asking the horse is this okay and giving him a little scratch and if he showed any concern you took your hand away and then you did that just really briefly two times to just say like look i'm not going to push you to do something that you're not ready for 
And then by the third time you did a little scratch is when he was like stretching and lip curling because it was like, okay, like I trust you. And that just, I mean, that's like a universal thing, right? So if you don't have that, if you don't have that trust, then you don't have much in any relationship. And he just yeah. felt like it was so much information. I mean, he's always taking everything in that, like, I think his brain was melting after a little bit. He's like, go home. <laughs> yeah, so the poor guy had to go home and take a nap. But, yeah, he, and he came back the second day, too. So it was, it was so cool to um, – such an honor to have him there and, and be interested in what I was doing. But then the we had a bit of a chat later, I think maybe a couple of days later or something or other, but – just drawing the parallels, you know, I, I, I did a clinic in Texas one time and there was a guy watching and I left the arena to go to the restroom or something and he stopped me and he said, I'm a, I'm a trauma therapist. And he said, this stuff you're doing with these horses is, is trauma work. And I think most horses that have been around humans much, that's the first step is unraveling the, the stuckness, unraveling mm-hmm. the, the trauma stuff before you can get to what you'd actually like them to do because they're not a fully functioning mammal, you know, like there's the, the nervous system stuck in certain places. And, you know, that's the relationship part of the, for me, that's the relationship part of the whole thing that allows the, the, the training part when you get to that to be easy, but trying to train right. a horse with all that stuck emotion and that stuck trauma in there is why horse training appears to be problematic you know like mm-hmm. oh my horse won't i can't get my horse to my horse does this mm-hmm. and it's not it's not something you got to address there for me it's it's go back and unravel why they are like that and when you get through that they they're all they're all very very willing to do whatever you want you know mhm well like and and i know that this is something that you've talked about is once you're in the nervous system the brain is not functioning right so if you have if a human is over threshold right or a horse is over threshold like they're not in their wise mind they can't make choices and be articulate and you know figure things out it's just what do i need to do to feel safe in this moment yeah that's yeah it was very cool anyway so we we probably should get into what do you do? So you are a sober coach and a clinical hypnotherapist. Is that right? Yeah. So <laughs> it's funny because I was just talking to um, someone about this, how, and I know that you've talked about this, which is it's so hard to quantify in some type of title, you know, what, what I, what I do with a lot of people that colleagues and people I know do because it's kind of oozed out of the constraints of what people think of in a certain title. So I, um, the best, the best description I believe is a transformational mentor. That's what I've, I've landed mm. on is a transformational mentor mentor. I, I do coach, but coaching is just a thing that I do within that construct, right? So I use hypnotherapy too, because if we can get the subconscious on board with the changes and the things we want to do, then we're ahead of the game, right? And then I use the horses because a lot of times, and this happens over and over, is that it's hard for people to integrate 
the intellectual knowing of what they know to be true or right or what they've been told about their issues. But being able to be around the horses and to be able to like project it onto the horses or see how it relates when the horses relate, all of a sudden that can just like all the little pistons and things click in together and it makes sense because it, they can view it outside of themselves. In something like a horse, see people trust animals so much more than humans because we can all come with like judgments and you know all of our ideas about how things should be and horses are just honest they're just completely in the moment and they tell the truth so you just jumped to the horses right there and um you know we haven't talked about that part so you use horses as part of your transformational coaching yes yes Uh, a lot a small part depends everything depends on the client Right. Um, I have had clients that told me they were terrified of horses that, I mean, just absolutely loved them after one session. Um, and some people, well, let's, can I, can I ask, sorry, can I ask you about that? Yeah, of course. Is it, is it because, and I think this is what happened at the clinic too, because, because that's what will really made me think about, um, is it because the story they've been telling themselves in their head about what what horses are and what they would do to a human, you know, they're a rather large animal, mm-hmm. you know, they're quite a bit bigger than us and way more powerful. And do you, do you think it's because they just assume a, a, a horse is like a defensive creature who's going to kick me or bite me or run over me or whatever – and do you feel that part of the transformation is shedding that idea, like coming away with a different impression or a different different thoughts about that? I mean, I know I'm kind of putting words in your mouth here, but yeah, no. <laughs> can you talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, yeah, I do. I, I there's definitely a big piece of that. I think the piece, the other piece, is that um, especially as adults. If we're entering into something new and we don't we don't have the tools, like we don't understand what is the language of, you know, the language with a dog and the language with a horse are completely different. Right. So if I don't know oh, what does that mean when their ears go back or what is that like? I have no idea where the boundaries are, what what is good, what is bad with this huge creature. So. And maybe they've had a bad experience in the past because they weren't protected or they weren't, you know, nothing was explained to them. And everyone's always so afraid of doing things wrong. You know, they don't want to get it wrong. They don't want to look stupid. They don't want to get hurt and feel embarrassed. So I think that if you create a really safe space and make it like, you know, you can't do anything wrong here. We're just meeting these horses out here and they're all very loving like I, I I'm lucky I have like very like goofy loving horses so once they feel that like oh you know patting a nose or giving like giving some carrots and laughing and like and then all of a sudden it's like oh this is this is really cool and I think that people are so attracted to horses because you know what 
I really deeply feel like the the wildness of them, the power of them speaks to something in us, something that maybe we can't even put our finger on, but that power and like seeing a horse running and like free is just, I don't know, it, it makes my heart, like my chest constrict a little bit. And so I think that tapping into that helps us tap into that little wildness inside of us too. Like what is in there that could be bigger and could be yeah. out here. You know, um, I think it was Jane Pike and I'm not sure if it was on the podcast. I or love it was her just, by the way. <laughs> when she, I love her too. She's one of the she coolest is. human beings. I can't imagine you and her in the same room together. Oh my God. I would love that so much. Exploding. <laughs> yeah. Um, she, I remember her saying a few years ago, I'm not sure if it was on the podcast or just when I was chatting with her sometime, but she said something about a lot of people are afraid like say to canter a horse or whatever, you know, like she, she deals a lot with rider mindset and a lot of people are afraid to canter a horse and, and it's not the speed, it's the power. And she said a lot of times it's because they're afraid of their own power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, that was quite profound. But the reason I was asking you that question is because, you know, in the clinics I'm working with the horses, I'm trying to unlock the horses and, so that, that horse that we talked about a minute ago that was, you know, quite shut down, not interested in communicating with humans, but the human knew that my horse is numb or dull, mm-hmm. you know, and he doesn't have an itchy spot. Three minutes later, you know, like I said, his head was turned upside down, his lip was curled back, and he's like, oh, my God, that feels good. <clears throat> so he started communicating. And then when I started working on the, on the groundwork, it didn't take very long where he could just, I could just move him quite easily with my body language and, and energy. And for me, I thought, so, you know, there you go. I've helped you with your horse sort of thing. But Will said to me, he said, I was, I was looking at the, the person and he said about, I think he said something about seeing the, the change in them when they change the story in their head. Like, so right then, this lady came to this clinic and she says, my horse will not Move. On the ground, I, I basically cannot get my horse to budge. My horse won't budge. And also, my horse doesn't have an itchy spot. Mm-hmm. And that was the story they were telling themselves. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, well, the itchy spot showed up first. And then after that horse started communicating with me, then we, I got to where the moving thing was. And so she has this story about this horse for a long time, that my horse is numb and dull and doesn't have an itchy spot, and all of a sudden you've just flipped the flipped the script, and she probably got to reflect on the fact that my horse is those things because of the way I have showed up and interacted with this horse. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. like, wow, I didn't, you know, I probably hadn't looked at it as much on in that side, and that's probably happening a lot in clinics. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. about trying to help the people understand their horses but i hadn't really thought about wow there's a story she's had about this horse that is completely different and when you and i've had those things with whatever hell mm-hmm. shit, i've done it publicly for a few years <laughs> now but the thing is when you get the switch flipped like that then you're going to get to question yourself well, what other stories am i telling myself yeah exactly about whatever mm-hmm. and and yeah. are they my stories 
or are they um, ancestral stories that have been passed down in my family that I didn't even know were in there? You know, I didn't even choose them. They were just, they're just there. Um, I want to say that one oh, thing. Of- <laughs> that could be, that could be my next rabbit hole. Cause I was talking to someone recently who said they've been doing ancestral trauma therapy. Mm-hmm. And they gave me the name of the lady that does the ancestral trauma therapy. I'm like, and it was, what was interesting is this, this person comes from another, what we call a Commonwealth country. So, a, you know, a country that falls under the British, you know, not yes. necessarily rule, but, you know, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, whatever, all those sorts of countries. Um, and his, his uh, heritage is a lot of Irish in there. And so my father, I've got a German last name, but I've looked into our family's history, and my father is five-eighths Irish, a quarter English, and an eighth German. And if you think about the Irish were almost, you know, white slaves sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, they've been, yeah, so it's, it's like, ooh, that's, that's another rabbit hole to go down. Mm-hmm. And the drinking. I mean, well, and why, the, why do you think they drink so much? Exactly. What are they, what are they, what are they, All the what are they numbing? Mm-hmm. What are they numbing? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It's funny, I did my 23andMe too and found out I was like 20% Polish, with which no one knew. But yeah, Irish, German, Polish. I really, really wanted to be Native American, but I have 0.05%. <laughs> so. You know, it's funny, those, talking to the stories you tell yourself, Robin's mum had always told her that she was one 32nd Chippewa Indian, so Chippewa Native American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because Robin's mum had been told that she's 116th Chippewa. Mm-hmm. And uh, Robin's mum did the, I don't know if it's 23andMe or the, or the other one, but it Ancestry. came back. Uh, yeah, Ancestry.com or whatever, but mm-hmm. it came back that Robin's mum is not 116th uh, Native American. She's actually 116th African American. Interesting. And it's it's interesting, where did that story come from? You know, like mm-hmm. Robin's mum was, she she knows she's 116th Native American because I've been told that, that somewhere back there there was a Chippewa mm-hmm. in the thing and it actually was not a Chippewa. So that, you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's funny because we we take on a bit of our identity from the stories too, right? And... Mm. I recently, through 23andMe or Ancestry, got hooked up with someone on my father's side. And, you know, my father left when I was a baby and my grandmother raised me. And um, But I was told stories, obviously, about that side of the family. And I was, you know, my actual last name would have been Schultz because I was told that my grandmother remarried. And so that my grandfather Schultz was a boxer that died of a ruptured spleen in the ring and that my grandmother remarried to a man who owned a bunch of shopping centers named Dixon and that he adopted my father and that's how we ended up with the name. Well, through this person, I found out that none of that is true. Um, 
My grandfather Schultz died of a heart attack at home. Um, he and then the Mr. Dixon, who my grandmother married, he drove a cab. <laughs> he did not own a string of grocery stores. <laughs> and it was just it's so funny because I was like, wow. Um, yeah, like there was parts of me that kind of, you know, you, I can imagine those are kind of romanticized stories, you know, like uh, my real father was a boxer, died in the ring, you know, it kind of, and then no. Um, and, and I think that depending on the person, it depends on how shocking those things can be to you, right? Um, how much they're attached to your identity. Luckily, that wasn't true for me because I didn't really know that side, but yeah, it's it's very fascinating. Yeah, very fascinating getting into that stuff. Why don't we dig into your past a little bit? So, you know, you're now a transformational coach, but you, the reason I labelled you a sober coach and a clinical hypnotherapist because you actually mentioned those two things the last time we were chatting. Yes. Um, so, what's the story? How does how do you end up at this point in time? I, and I'm going to guess. Because I think everybody I've met that does something along the lines of what you've done, have you you do is you've done your own work and found it. This is just a guess. You've done <laughs> your own work and found it to make you your life completely different, and wanted to share that with others. That's 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 my guess. But you can tell me your story. How does one end up being a transformational coach? Um, that was a really good sum- summation. Um, yeah. How does one? I could not have planned being a transformational mentor if I tried. I, um, you know, back in my 20s, I met a woman who became a mentor of mine. And she said to me, um, you know, you're either on the path or you're not. And I choose to surround myself with people who are on the path. And not so much as a judgment, because we're all in our different places, right? But what she meant by that was, it's not about whether you've reached some kind of destination. It's, are you fascinated? Are you really interested in being a person that looks at yourself and goes, why do I think that way? Or why, you know, and interested in other people in the world and the way we're connected. Like, are you on the path of trying to be integrating with life and figuring things out and curious and see it as an adventure? And I was going to say curious is the word I was thinking of, mm-hmm. you know, like, are you curious? About are you stuff? curious? And, and t- that really hit me. Um, because I realized I already had been, I had been on that probably my whole life up to that point. I was only in my mid twenties, but, and that's why when I started my business, I named it on the path because that's the most important thing. the, The most important thing I think is, is having a curiosity about why do I feel that way? Or why do I think that way? Or why do I think that person said that, you know, well, maybe they have some pain inside of them. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to take that personally, you know, having that curiosity and that openness. Um, and that was in your 20s? Yeah, that was in my 20s. Um, well, in the, before we started recording this podcast, you said something. In my 20s, I was in New York taking acting classes. Tell me about, tell me about 
What were you doing in New York and why were you taking acting classes? Um, I think I think that a lot of people who look at um, want to be an actor. I know for me, I'll, I'll speak for myself. Like I wanted to be a, an actress because not just the creative part of it, but I think the two things that really attracted me was this um, psychological part of like figuring out characters and figuring out, you know, how people relate and how they act and how they think. And then, of course, the other part, which is like massive amounts of validation. That would have been great. You know, like I really, <laughs> the attraction to be validated on a large scale. That's one of the, one of the questions I was going to ask because, you know, I have, I know if I've talked about it in the podcast, but I've talked about it to a number of people. Like, my life is kind of weird to where I am now kind of in the public eye quite a bit. Um, and I was, you know, I wanted to be a horse trainer. And I suppose I, I suppose I wanted to be a horse trainer. You know, part of that being a horse trainer was, uh, and especially competing in, say, the reigning, is you want to be known by those people, those peers of yours. You want them to think of you as whatever you want that validation there mm-hmm. um but then you get to a point you know like when my wife my, my life took a strange turn to where you know now i'm in the public eye a little bit at least on social media you know it's not that mm-hmm. it's not that big a deal but there's a number of people quite a few people might know who i am and have opinions of me or, or whatever and it's an odd place to be because i have said this before if you grow up and you want to, You think you want to be a football player, or you want to be a baseball player, or you want to be an actor mm-hmm. or an actress, or you want to be a rock star. You know that if I get good at what I do, I am going to be in the public eye mm-hmm. on a large scale. And I've kind of ended up in the public eye on a small scale, but it's not something I expected to be. But then I get to questioning, like, so why mm-hmm. am I here? Like, why do I want to be here? Is it that external validation? What is it? You know, like people, or even if horsemen who give clinics, you know, they, what is it, what is it they want from that? But anyway, getting back to your actress thing, like, yeah, you, mm-hmm. that's one of the questions I was, one, I wanted to know why the actress thing, because I'm sure in reflection now you can probably look back on it and see deeper meanings in what you were seeking mm-hmm. from that. And you just said, yeah, the, what, what was the word you used? The uh, Massive amounts of validation. <laughs> yes, that, massive amounts of validation. Well, because it, I think that we think, I think when we're, when we haven't gotten to the place of knowing yet, we think that if we get the external validation, that means we're okay, right? We're not going internal to do that work. We're going, well, if everyone else loves me, I must be lovable, right? If they all think I'm funny and great and want to hang out with me, then it must be true. So I'm okay. And I think that, I think it comes But you're only okay because they they tell you you're okay. Right. And let me tell you, they can turn on you. (laughs) We've seen it. (laughs) So if, you know, there's a big danger in putting that, in other people's hands, you know, um, there is, there is a, there's a great book. And I think I told you about it called, um, the obstacle is the way by Ryan holiday. 
and he explores, you know, Buddhism and, you know, Stoicism and all these different principles and how they affect, uh, you know, relate to life and the human struggle. And, and he told this story about this, I'm bad at remembering names sometimes, but um, it was a very famous new pitcher on a baseball team that was like the Cinderella story star pitcher. And um, he just signed a huge contract. And, and then he couldn't pitch. He couldn't pitch. He was like in his head, all this money, all these people looking at him. He couldn't pitch. And what happened was he worked with someone who basically told him, you have to let go of your attachment to the cheers. Because you can't let go of the of the pain of the booze if you still need the cheers because they're they come together so how can you quiet all of that out and have no attachment to that and he worked on that and that's what got him back like now he just it, they all goes away because they're two sides of the same coin right it's like Brene Brown says, right? You can't just stop down the bad feelings. If you, if you disconnect from feeling, you disconnect from all feeling. That baseball thing right there, that was amazing. i tell you what, funny story related to that. I was at a um, uh, horse expo in Scottsdale, Arizona a few years ago. And on the Sunday night, a few of us got invited out to a horse trainer's place in on the outskirts of Scottsdale for mm-hmm. a barbecue. Mm-hmm. So we go out there and this guy's got this beautiful, he trains rain cow horses, but he's got this beautiful big house. And we go through his beautiful house and out to this big patio area at the back and we're all sitting around drinking a beer or whatever. And then this guy walks around the corner, comes in the backyard, like he's the neighbour or something really, you know, and he, and mm-hmm. he walks in and, and he said, they said, uh, they introduce us to him you know he's wearing like sweatpants and he's carrying a six-pack of Coors Light you know puts it in the cool he's got a baseball cap on Mm -hmm. and he sits down there and he just joins in the conversation and and I had blown some tires on the horse trailer there going there and I was talking about the horse trailer I had in the you know I don't forget how old it was but I blew one tire and I went to replace it they don't make that tire anymore so I had to replace five tires on the horse trailer so we just got chatting about that and he was saying yeah when I'm hauling things I you know, I'm on hauling horses or whatever. I, and he, he talked about his tyres or what he does. And so I figured, oh, he has horses. Anyway, we're just hanging out with this dude. And uh, at some point in time, I go in the kitchen or something, and they say, you know that guy's a professional baseball player, just signed a $23 million five-year contract. I'm like, really? Yeah. So anyway, I'm back out there. Him and I were chatting before, so I'm... My wife and I were out there chatting with him, actually, and I said, so, so you're a baseball player? He says, yeah. He said, um, I'm, uh, so he was the starting pitcher for, I forget, but Scottsdale, Arizona is where they all do the spring training, so that's what yeah. he was doing there. I forget who he played for. Um, and I said, so where'd you go to college? I don't know much about the American sports thing, but I do know that if you're a major league baseball player, you obviously got drafted you know, went to college, got drafted, whatever. And he says, oh, oh I didn't. And I said, huh? well, how, do you, how are you a major league baseball player? Because you've got to get drafted, don't you? You've got to get drafted out of college. He goes, no, I got drafted out of high school, actually. 
And I'm like, is that a thing? Like, you can do that? And he said, yeah, you can do that. And I said, so where'd you go to high school? And he, he, he said, I'm from Texas. And I said, where'd you go to high school? And he named this town. I'm like, where's that? And he said, oh, it's kind of halfway between San Angelo and, and San Antonio. So it's in the middle of nowhere. And I said, how big a town is it? And he says, oh, about 4,000 people. And then, pardon my French listeners, but I says, how the fuck do you get drafted into the majors from a town of 4,000 people in BFE, Texas? <laughs> and he gave me the greatest one-line answer I've ever heard. And I've got to remember what it was now, how it goes. <laughs> he said, because I never believed it wouldn't happen. And I told that story at a clinic in England a few years ago. And there was someone in the clinic who is a, who is a poet, who is an Oxford graduate and a poet. And she said a double negative is way more powerful than a positive. I never believed it wouldn't happen. Right. I never even put that together. That was a double negative. Yeah. Yes. I said, how do you get drafted into the major leagues and get a $23 million contract out of a high school in the middle of nowhere, Texas? And he looked me in the eye and he said, I just never believed it wouldn't happen. And it was like silence. There's nothing. There's no more questions left to ask after that. But I, but I, I really believe... Look, when you have that kind of tunnel vision, we, and I don't, look, I don't think it necessarily comes from an, an intellectual thought, right? Because I could think right now, like, I want a billion dollars, right? But I'm not really attached to that. Like, if I was money motivated, I would be working in finance, right? It's not that money doesn't play a role, but... It's the idea that with what he was doing with his manifesting is that he saw it, felt it, integrated it. He knew it. It was like breathing for him. And I think that that comes from, you know, the universe a bit. Like there's, there's a whole, like, what is your destiny? I think. And, and having that conscious choice too. when they meet together, it's, it's how to manifest a car crash, right? <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> right. You know, driving, driving home from there, uh, Robin and I were thinking, hmm, that might be our next tattoo. I just never believed it wouldn't happen. I've had moments like that in my life too. Like there's only a few that are that clear, but yeah. Mm. So you were telling us about somehow we, we got – Oh, you got onto obstacles the way you were talking about the, the baseball player, which that story was amazing. i got to get that book now. But you were talking about acting, acting in New York. Yeah. Oh, then you um, got talking into the, the, the validation of the, the masses, yes. You know, the other thing is I think a, a lot of um, people who go into acting and people who go into any type of healing work um, dealing with, you know, whether it's therapist or, you know, working with people with horses or whatever it is. I think that people, people who have had trauma and pain 
are the people that gravitate towards being on that path and wanting to understand and also wanting to help other people on their journey as well. It's the wounded healer archetype. Exactly. I mean, when I, when I went to school for clinical hypnotherapy, it was the, one, the first thing that they said, one of the things is they said, you know, the people that gravitate towards this, this work are also the people that need it the most. Do you remember the podcast with uh, Sarah Schlotty from Canada? I'm not the best with names, so what Okay, was the... so she's a trauma therapist, but she, okay. her, one of her mentors early on said, the reason you get un- into the work can't be the reason you stay in the work. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and it, it, believe me, <laughs> it does evolve. Um, there was actually, you know, in 2020, my business exploded in 2020 because, you know, when everyone's in lockdown and you're all these people I'd worked with in addiction, you know, being isolated is not a good place. And, I was lucky enough to build my whole business on referrals. So I had people referring people. I had, and um, because I had the fear of lack, right? I, I took everything and I kind of burned myself out um, towards, you know, going into uh, this last summer because I took everything. I was on call on everything, like 24-7, flying around with clients, traveling with clients, doing, like going to people's homes. Like I was, I was working a lot. And, you know, I think that I was afraid for a minute that, oh, wow, maybe this was all just me working out the fact that I couldn't, my mother um, was a, a very bad alcoholic and I couldn't save her, right? I could never change her. I could never do enough to, to fix her. And maybe I'm burned out because I've played that out with so many other people now that I've kind of healed that part of myself. And maybe that's why I'm burned out. Like I literally had this like, oh my gosh, like what if I've just reached a point where I can't really do this work anymore? And it reminded me of a story that I learned um, about Marlon Brando, that Marlon Brando was a method actor. And he, whenever he had a scene that he had to, he had to cry and be emotional in, he would use the memory his brother had died and he would use the death of his brother to be able to cry. And one day he had to cry in a scene and he tried to use that and it wouldn't work. And what he realized was that he had so completely grieved his brother by using it over and over again that he, he, it wasn't grief in him anymore. It, he didn't reside in him anymore. And luckily for me, I didn't lose my calling. I just really needed the break and to set better boundaries for myself and um, 
recognize that there was some fear mixed in with like saying yes to everything. And that I had to, you know, I, I always tell people like, I, I couldn't plan being here. I couldn't have done this. Like there was the universe in a way, this is how I see things. It's, it's, it's like action meets intention and what it is you're supposed to be doing, right? So, you know, if there are dreams that you have and things that you want to do, people get, people get destination, you know, addiction because they think it's about getting to that place, right? The big office in the corner. It's just about getting there. And it's, it's, it's not, life is not lived in that way, right? It's what it is, is you have to understand that you're not energetically a match yet for that corner office. And you have to go through all of the little big wins because the littlest ones, we all, I don't know about you, but I remember the tiny ones that felt like a switch flipped in my brain. Like I suddenly saw things completely differently. And that opened up so much more possibility. So you do the work, you show up, and then a door comes and you get to go through that door. And then you do the more work and you show up. But you can't even know what door you're going to fully go. I mean, you have an idea, you're going on a direction. But you couldn't, pl- you couldn't plan where you were going to be right now. If you, like if you were back in Australia thinking about moving to the U.S. and... Like, I'm sure you, everything had to evolve, but you showed up and you were fascinated and curious and interested. And you said, a lot of times I'll say like, I want this to happen. This is what I see. But what I'm asking for is what I'm meant to do. What am I, what am I meant to have? Bring that. Because sometimes it's what you didn't want, but there's a message in learning it. Like that's just telling you that way isn't the way go over here. Try this. Yeah. You just, you just covered like, you know, the podcast guests get to choose some questions out of a list. I send them and you just covered two of the questions that you didn't choose. But one of the questions on the thing is um, in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? And the other one is, what do you think your true purpose is in the world? Things build. Right. Accelerate. Like when you're going to accelerate, like you don't just go from, you know, we talk about zero to 60, but there is a period between that. Right. Things build. And. You know, um, I call myself a self-described late bloomer. Um, I was building the whole time, but things didn't come together. Until they came together, which was in my late forties, like I didn't, you know, but my whole life had been building up to that. Right. So what? what? <laughs> me, me too. Late forties, almost 50. And I was talking about this the other day with someone and I said, have you ever seen Slumdog Millionaire? You know, the movie, have you ever seen the movie mm-hmm. Slumdog yeah, Millionaire? Uh-huh. You know, so this, this Indian kid from the, from the um, slums of Mumbai or whatever, ends up on a game show and he's got to answer these questions to, you know, it's who wants to be a millionaire and he's getting them all right. And there's no way a kid from the 
the slums of Mumbai should know the answer to these things. And it plays back all these life experiences he's had that got him to that point. And it's kind of like that. It's kind of like you're playing Slumdog Millionaire to where these random things that happened along during your life at the time, you didn't realise they were a piece of that bigger picture. Mm-hmm. until you get to a certain point, you look back and you go, oh, yes, like you said, I've been building all this time. I've been slowly getting towards this point I'm at now, which is just a point on the journey anyway. It's not like mm-hmm. anybody's at yeah. the place. Yeah. But but you start to realise that, oh, yeah, and that happened. And, and one of the questions you didn't choose to is, what's been your biggest failure and how has it helped you? But I guarantee you along the way there's been some failures that at the <laughs> time were devastating and looking back it's like, oh, that's what led me down. That's what said that's the wrong direction. You can't go in that direction. You've got to go in this direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're answering all the questions without even <laughs> Well, here's choos- the cool thing of, about failure is that one of the healthiest things we can do is own our life completely. You know, I... I believe, because it works for me, that our soul, our spirit, chooses the life before we're born for those challenges on the evolution of our soul, our spirit, right? This is part of our evolution. And, you know, hearing that can be very painful for people who have real severe trauma. But what I will tell you is that there is a shift that happens when you can look at your pain as a teacher, as a learning, as something that you can use to give back. That if you own it, like if my spirit chose this, then I may have been a victim to what happened, but my life is not victimized. How do I and integrate there's a moment, that? There's a moment in every podcast when someone says something so profound, the world stops, <laughs> and that was it right there. Oh, my God. Well, how much different do you feel if it's like, oh, this, is, this pain, this hurt, this trauma was for me to figure out how do I rise above it? How do I... How do I move past it? How do I integrate it? Not throwing it away and pretending it didn't happen, but how do I integrate it in a way that works for my calling, my life? Because maybe it's just that you can, you have empathy. You have great empathy now for people. You know, some people actually, that's why they go into their whole career is because they want to help other people in whatever way that they were affected. So I think making that choice. So, you know, when I when I look back at anything that was painful in my life, um, I, I struggle to call anything a failure because I use every stupid mistake I ever made, I use... All of my journey, um, all of the holes I fell in, as a way to 
connect with other people and, and have understanding of their experiences. Because I have had so many of them myself. And I am not a person on high. I'm, I'm just a person on that path that may be a few steps ahead of you. And I may be able to reach my hand back and say, hey, I've learned some things because I'm a little further ahead that I think could really help you. And my hope is always that people get everything out of me that they can, like use it all up, and then they go on to find, you know, something bigger in their journey to keep going. To leapfrog ahead. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I can really resonate with that. I can't. I, I, I have this. I don't know if it's an internal argument, but you know, I kind of know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm, I'm unsure. Do I, do I, um, not go so far down the rabbit hole as to not be relevant to a number of people anymore, or do I stand in the doorway and kind of go, "Hey, have a look in here. There's some cool mm-hmm. stuff over here." So yeah, I'm. And I, I recently had a big old conversation with a group of very enlightened people about this, and they said, stop overanalyzing it, just do your work. <laughs> just shut up and do your job. <laughs> Whatever right. happens will happen. I'm like, okay, yeah, i got to stop overanalyzing that. Well, yeah. that's the anxiety piece, right? We're looking into the future, mm. and we're projecting onto it, oh, maybe I won't be me anymore, right? Like maybe I won't be relatable. I'm going to be this other person. And I don't know if I want to be that other person, but I don't think that you, in the way that you're progressing on your journey, would ever, you're not, that's not going to happen. Like, you're not going to be a different person. You'll always be you. I think I'm, I, I, Got a meme here. I, I take screenshots of memes. And I saw one from David Bowie the other way, other day. It said, aging, aging is an extraordinary process where you become the person you always should have been. Exactly. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I want to clarify a little bit about saying, yes, you will always be you. But I also think that as we evolve, right, it's that idea of we have an idea of who what we are moving towards, what we who we the best version of ourselves is, right? And then there's the version that we're living now. And every time we level up, the old you has to die. And I think that freaks people out because they want to be over here. But they're still holding on to this version because Kyle Cease has the best quote. And it says, you're only afraid because you can measure what you would lose, but you can't see what you'll gain. You're only afraid because you can measure what you can lose. You can't see what you could gain. Wow. I mean, that's kind of, that was me. 
for sure. I mean, it's still me. I, 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 I get addicted, though, to, like, throwing myself into things that I feel like I'm not ready for. <laughs> and then, like, figure it out. Um, because it's always exciting. It's something, something always comes out of it that's fascinating. You got me a loss for words. Like, the last... Mm. Five or ten minutes has been too much wisdom for me. I'm just kind of maybe maybe it's all yeah. I've I feel like maybe six months ago that would have been relatively profound, but right now it's a lot of that stuff's hitting me. Yeah, it's funny. You You're know good that. at your job. You know that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you know that that um, that poem I sent you. Yes. Yesterday. So that yes. is by a woman named, I think, Araya Mountain Dreamer is her name. And she has a book called The Invitation that's all based on that poem. And she does workshops. And she was saying that one of at her workshops, she has people write down the five things that they want to let go of. And then they burn them. Right. And it's this whole like ritual. And, and she said that one of these, the women that was there said to her, well, I'm afraid that I am only with my husband because I value money and material things. And I'm afraid that we're you know, we've lost whatever we once had. And she's like, and so, like, I don't know if I want to, like, so well, tell me that I'll be okay. Like, if I do this, if I write this down and we burn this, will I still be okay? Like, well, or will I, you know, is this going to make me leave my husband? Like, what is this going to do? Think of, like, I think about that because I always think that people know they look, they already know what's not working, what's out of alignment, what that little tiny voice that keeps whispering, you know, take that class, do that thing, move in with your parents, do, you know, save up your money, do whatever it is, like that little thing. Mel Robbins talks about you have that little voice is the truth and you have five seconds to act on it. And if you don't, we just go, not right now, or I can't. Mm. So this woman wanted to do this transformational work, but she didn't want to be transformed because she was afraid because that meant she had to show up for her own life. You talk a lot about the books that really impact you. And there is a book by Stephen Pressfield, Pressfield called the, the War of Art. And it is one of the most profound books because what he says is he believes that the universal fear that we all have that, that is the most limiting fear is that we are all terrified to show up 
completely for ourselves in our own life. That, and that's why we go to college and we, we major in the, the safe thing instead of the thing that we want. You know, a lot of people that, that wanted to be in a band, they're, you know, A&R guys and they're, because they're close to what they wanted to do, but, but they, they held back. And it doesn't mean you have to do it for a living too. Like it could be a hobby, you know, like not everyone's going to be super uber successful in a band, but you know, he talks about that and he gives an example. This is a trippy example. He said, you know, Adolf Hitler, when his parents died, left him um, a small inheritance and he wanted to be an artist. And he took that inheritance and he went, moved to Austria and he went to art school. And he wasn't very good. Like, like, to start with, let's say he didn't have any natural talent. And he de was dejected and returned to Germany and eventually created World War II. And Stephen Pressfield's view is, it was easier to start World War II than to be an artist, which was what he wanted. Because that's scarier to show up and to do the work and to stay like, all right, I'm not very good, but like, let me keep working at it because this is really who I want to be. Want to support the Journey On podcast and get access to exclusive interviews? Become a Patreon member today. With Patreon, you can ask questions to upcoming guests and receive behind-the-scenes content. Check out the Patreon link in the description to browse membership options and subscription perks. Whoa. Um, that kind of reminded me of um, Howard Stern interviewed Ed Sheeran one time. Mm -hmm. and, he and you were talking about, you know, Showing up and like not holding back, sort of thing, you know, like the A and R guy who wanted to be in music, but you know, at some point in time, he pulled back. And Howard Stern asked, and the reason I know this story, I didn't listen to the interview. I was actually when a few years ago, I was in Canada and I was in a pickup with um, Jonathan Field. Oh. I think he was taking me to the airport, and Jonathan Field told me this story. But he said uh, Howard Stern interviewed Ed Sheeran, and he said, "So, what was what was Plan B?" And Ed Sheeran said, I didn't have a plan B. Mm -hmm. Ed Sheeran said, I can, I could name, you know, I could hold my hands up and count to 10. I could name 10 other hugely successful musicians that didn't have a plan B. He says, and the reason they're successful is mm -hmm. because they didn't have a plan B. Like they kept mm -hmm. going basically when the going got tough and the reason they got through the other side is because they didn't have a plan B and we're always taught to have a plan B, you know right. what I mean? And it's so. Play it safe, be safe, be practical. <sighs> well, look, I'll, I'll say something else to that too, is that I bet that Ed Sheeran would still be a musician and playing music and playing coffee shops, playing anywhere that he could and maybe working a job to support himself if he didn't make enough. Because that was what his calling, that was what 
lit him up is is being a musician. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert, you know Elizabeth, she wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Yes, yes. So she wrote a book called Big Magic. Big Magic, one of my favorite books. Oh my God, isn't it amazing? It's so beautiful. So you remember in Big Magic, one of the things she says is like, I made a pact with myself when I was 16 that I was a writer. I was going to end, but I never projected on to that love and made it responsible for me financially because that putting that together of like, oh, I have to be paid to be a writer to actually be a writer. And now I have to, I, now I'm my, in my head about it because I'm like the business of writing and not. So she worked, she bartended, she was a ranch hand. She did all these experiential jobs, but she said, I never made my art pave my way. And I was happy because I was authentically me. And I think that that's true too, because maybe you do something for a living that you do enjoy, right? Maybe it's not your calling, but you do enjoy it and it makes you money. And the thing that you want to do is theater, you know, like you love things, do community theater, like do it, be involved, do that. It doesn't have to be something that financially supports you either. Yeah, one of my, there's a story in Eat, Pray, Love that I sometimes will come up in conversations with people, but it's the one about, this is the craziest story, it's the one about where she was going to write this book and she had it in her head and it was, there was a family in Canada that have like oil fields and there's the father yes. and the son and then there's, yes. a, there's a lady who's a receptionist in the That's business in big magic. and the son yes. goes to set... That's in Big Magic. The son goes yes. to South America to, to look into exploring for oil down there and he disappears. Yes. And the, the father wants to go and find him, but he, he wants to keep running the business. So he sends, he's going to send the receptionist to South America to try to find this guy and some big adventure ensues. And she has this, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to write this mm -hmm. book. I'm going to write this book. She's got this idea, going to write this book. And at some point in time, she is at like a writer's conference or something or other, and she meets another writer who she's a Anne fan Pratchett, of, who she's right? never met. I forget Anne the lady's Pratt name. Pratchett? and Pratchett? Is that who Pratchett? it is? Something and like so that, yeah. she's a fan of the other lady, and the other lady's a fan of hers. The other lady's read Eat, Pray, Love, and they meet and like, oh, I love you, and they give each other a big hug. And how are you going? And they spend the weekend together at this writer's conference or whatever they're presenting at then they don't see each other for a couple of years in person mm -hmm. but they write letters back and forth and things like that and the next time they see each other in person she elizabeth gilbert still hasn't written this book and she mm -hmm. says to the other lady so what what have you been up to she goes i've just written this amazing mm -hmm. book and elizabeth gilbert's like so what's it about she goes well it's about this family in canada that has these mm -hmm. oil business and there's a secretary and there's father and the son and the son goes to south america then the secretary goes to try to find him because he gets lost and it's exactly the freaking same book mm -hmm. and elizabeth gilbert goes well how long have you been writing that she says oh well the idea came to me roughly about the time that we met and the whole, what Elizabeth Gilbert's saying in this thing is the universe was telling her, here, write this book, write this book, write this mm -hmm. book. And we, she kept saying, no, 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 no. Like in that hug where she hugged that lady, the universe said, well, I'm going to give it to her. Yes. And it was yes. like, oh, that is the coolest story. <laughs> that is the coolest story. It would like give me chills. That one I, and the one about 
the um, the poet who lived on the farm, and she said that when she would get when the poetry would come to her, it always came, you know, from that magical place in the ethos, and it would you know get downloaded basically into her, and. She said she'd never know when she would be struck. And she was out in the fields one day. And all of a sudden, like, this amazing poem was coming to her. And she was sprinting back to the house to get back to her pen and paper. And she said it was like having a tiger by the tail. And when she got it down, it literally went down on the paper backwards because she was pulling it back and they and she's dictating it backwards onto the page like that's insane it's like someone had jumped out the window and you grabbed him by the foot and you were slowly dragging yes, him back pulling him back in yeah i don't remember that in the book the other but the other one i do remember is some famous musician talks about he'd written this song in his head and hadn't done anything with it and one day he gets in, you know, he flies somewhere, he gets in a rental car and he's driving along and the song comes out on the radio. Someone else has has pulled that has song out of the universe song. and it was his song. But he didn't, he had the idea and didn't use it forever. So we're like, screw it. And, there's, and he, whoever it is, I think it was the same musician, could have been a different famous musician, was saying that his ki- he has ki- his kids' rights, and this is about non-attachment, he has kids, his kids write songs mm-hmm. and then throw them away. Like, did, just, you have a, did you have a Buddha board? Did you ever get a Buddha board? No, what's that? So I have, have a Buddha board here. So it's basically like a little um, easel and a paintbrush, and you fill the little face with water, and you draw on it with water, and you make some kind of beautiful design, and then... As the water evaporates, the picture goes away. Oh, so it's like the Buddhist sand painting things they do. Have you ever seen that? No. So the Buddhist monks will sit around and they get it's uh, colored sand in mm-hmm. their hand and they'll let it sprinkle out the bottom and they draw. And they, they're, from what I've seen, they're probably three or four feet square and they spend like days doing this beautiful sand painting on the floor, like very, very intricate. And it, they're gorgeous. And they, they concentrate and they do it for hours and hours and hours. And when they create this beautiful piece of art, they don't take a picture of it. They don't do anything. They just walk through it with their feet and go, and just oh. turn it back into dust. <laughs> wow. Because it's non-attachment. You spend right. all this time mm-hmm. doing this thing. You'd think you'd want to take a picture of it, show somebody, hang it on the wall or whatever. And they just, once they're done with it, they just erase it. Basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. We were talking about all this like creative stuff, right? Artists and 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 you know musicians and stuff. And I think it's really the the thing I thought so beautiful about Elizabeth's book is that she's like, look, we are all creators. I don't care if you paint for a living or you're an accountant. We create life, and we create our own life. We are creative. You're creative. I'm creative. There's kind of that thing that we're told when we're young, like, oh, you're not good at that. You're not, you're not an artist, right? Mm. You try to draw and you're terrible. It's like, oh, you know, that, that's not who you are. And that shuts down 
a really create like a really curious, creative, adventurous side of us because then we dissociate from that part of ourselves and we deny it and we shut it down. And I mean, you could be creative with cooking. You can be creative with, you know, there's so many, like you're the way you garden, the way you, you know, I you know what I'd love to do. If I could do this for a living and you may see this already, but like, I love to put people together. Like, oh, you need to know this person or that person. Like, if I could just sit around and do that all day, I would love that. Well, I've been on the receiving end of that, and thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. It's fun. Oh, my goodness. I could listen to your wisdom all day. Um, but you know what? I, you mentioned a poem that you sent me yesterday, and I mm-hmm. probably, I'm going to read it right now because it, I okay. read it last night, and I'm like, wow. Who is this by? So that is by Uriah Mountain Dreamer. Um, she wrote a book called The Invitation. Okay, in capital letters it says, it doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for, and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me here how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dream, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you've touched the center of your own sorrow. If you've been opened by life's betrayals or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain, I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine, or sorry, yeah, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. God, that's a... I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, to be realistic, to remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you're telling is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself. If you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. If you can be faithless and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty, even when it's not pretty every day. And if you can source your own life from its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine and still stand on the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes. It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done to feed the children. It doesn't interest me who you know or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what, or with whom you have studied, I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. Wow. I think I needed that right now. While I was reading that, I'm like, that's it's so piercing. It's it's also very appropriate for this podcast, for this particular conversation in the podcast, because 
you, so how you introduced Will to me was you share a celebrity client. Yes. You've also worked at a, uh, I think it's like a rehab center in, in LA that has lots of celebrities there. And I was going to kind of bring that up. Mm-hmm. Not that you could mention or would mention the names, but I was going to kind of bring up the fact that, oh, yeah, I'm talking to this lady and she's been around all these famous people. <laughs> and then you've spouted out all this wisdom. And then I read that poem. And during that poem, it says, Who gives a shit? Mm-hmm. If the person on your podcast has met a lot of famous people. Well, it's kind of like what Jim Carrey says, you know. I wish everyone could be rich and famous so that they could see it's not what you think it is. That one and Mike Tyson. Anybody who thinks having a lot of money will make you happy ain't never had a lot of money. I'll tell you what. My work as a sober coach like real it's the truth is is that that is something that mostly only affluent people can afford it's because it's not covered under insurance and one of the things that is very true is that if you think money i always tell people if you think money would buy you happiness just hang out in beverly hills for a little while and tell me if the people that you run into are happy um, and that's not trying to judge them. But what happens is, is what people don't understand is like, especially if you don't have money, let's say, let's use money because it's, everyone understands money, right? Money is energy. But if you don't have enough of it, it can be stressful. So if you feel like you're always paycheck to paycheck and that money could really change your life then the idea of money grows, right? And you think, well, if I had money, man, all this would go away and things would be so much better. But what happens is, is as you make more money, your relationship to money changes. But if you had anxiety of money when you didn't have money, I want to tell you that you will have twice as much anxiety when you do have money because now... You're afraid of losing it. The, the, the fear around money, if you have fear around money, it doesn't go away by having more. And that is very apparent uh, when you work with people who have a lot of money because you think that I wouldn't have money as an issue that I have to think about anymore if I had it, and it becomes really the opposite. Yeah, so there is a cutoff number of reading a book somewhere. And it's like $78,000 a year in income. I think if you don't live in L.A., yes. Unless, but if you don't live in L.A. <laughs> yeah, if you don't live in L.A. or San Francisco, like in the Bay Area like I live. I'm going to write this down. If you have fear around money. It doesn't go away. If it you doesn't go away money. when you have more. Um, yeah, so, but there is a point. So, you know, in most of the U.S., I think it's $78,000. And maybe that book's a few years old. Whatever it is, there's a number. Where it said those people are the happiest, right? Well, it's not that those people are the happiest. Until you reach that, your happiness is a little dependent on money. Mm-hmm. But once you get to that point, no amount of money past that point makes you makes any you happier. More happy, right. 
yeah, you need you need to have you know if you almost need to get to that point to where money is not affecting your happiness, but mm-hmm. more of it. It's kind of like I'm not sure if it's I think it's in Malcolm Gladwell's um, Outliers where he's talking about different things. He's talking about the word enough. Like if you're going to play in the NBA, mm-hmm. uh, if you're five foot six, you're not tall enough. But if you're six foot four, you are tall enough. But the difference between six foot four and seven foot four, it's not seven foot four is not better than six foot four. Once you're tall enough, yeah, all right. More tall, more tall doesn't make you more tall doesn't make you better in the in in the NBA. But if you're five foot six, you're not tall enough to play in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a cutoff point to where that, that's the threshold to where that's all the tallness you need. Now it's right. not tallness anymore. It's not height anymore that's going to help you out. There's some other intrinsic stuff. And and I, I really do believe that. Um, so the reason that they had that 70 something thousand was that it was basically the idea that you have all the money for all of your bills, medical insurance, all that stuff, money to have a vacation and enough money to have a bit of a savings. And that was kind of the bar. And I think that the reason why the happiness doesn't get more with more is because most people don't have a good relationship with money. We have so much projected onto money. Like, you know, the idea that if we had, there's everyone has a number in their head that if they had that money, they're now the person that they don't like right oh they're the one percent or they're you know like there's a there's a a energy like or you know maybe you were told you know who do you think you are money doesn't grow on trees you know takes hard work and you know people with money are are selfish are you selfish you know there's so much and but if you look at it like if money is energy i'm not looking to collect money I'm looking to be a conduit for money, right? I'm looking because if I have a lot of energy coming my way, then I can put it towards charities or um, the people in my, like I can put my kid through a better school and then look, then he's going to be a better, um, give more to society because of that. Like it's how you see it. And, but if you think money and possessions will make you happy, it's only because you haven't had that amount of money and possessions yet. Like it's it's like a dopamine hit. Like buying something big, it gives you that woo, and then kind of like when you collect horses. <laughs> like oh, that one's so pretty, I gotta have it. And then, oh, it's another mouth to feed. Another <laughs> right? Yes, um, I did a podcast early on in the podcast called Books That Have Influenced Me, and one was a a little known book called Backbone. It's like a men's, you know, you haven't, you look it up, it's, there's, you know, I don't know how many prints, how many copies in print, but it's a, basically a men's self-help sort of a book. Um, and this guy says that most men spend all their life trying to make, trying to attain four things at the same time. Like if I could get these four things, I would be happy. Mm-hmm. Number one is material wealth. Uh, number two is vocational success. Number three is health. And number four is love. So if I can have, if I can have a 
happy with my partner, I'm healthy, and I have money is not a problem. Like I, if I want to do something, I can afford to do it and vocational success. So I am the top of the food chain. I'm the CEO, whatever it might be. If I could, or, you know, whatever business. Yeah, you're in, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I, I could get all four of those things. The reason I'm not happy is because I don't have all four of those things. And if I could only get all four of those things, then we come to the Jim Carrey quote. Mm-hmm. I wish everybody could be rich and famous so they know that it's not in, anything you'd want. And so this guy in the book says, once you get to that point, not many people get to the point where have all four of those things. But once you get there, then you go, oh, shit, it wasn't that. And now, now I don't what? even know what to re- reach for. Right. Now what do right. I do? Right. Now what? Now, yeah. And so um, he says, you could have three. Then you get, you've got to have three things. Once you get to that point, you realize there's th- only three things that are going to make you happy. Mm-hmm. Number one is you have to f- find and know your purpose. What? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What are you doing here? Uh, number two is you have to have a deep and authentic spiritual belief. Doesn't necessarily mean religion mm-hmm. or whatever, but you've got to have mm-hmm. a connection to something bigger than yourself that makes you feel small, basically. And then number three is you've got to get rid of your bullshit. <laughs> so those things. What's your purpose? Number three is a lifetime. No, I just didn't. Number three is a, number three is a bit of work. But yeah, number one, you've got to figure out your purpose. Number two you get a deep and authentic spiritual belief. And number three is you've got to get rid of your bullshit. And so that's unraveling all your traumas. And, and you know, and I think number two helps that a lot, having a yeah, I, spiritual connection. Yeah, I do connection. too. I think, that, I think that one of the things I've, I've run into with people who struggle with that is that a lot of people who struggle with that are people who have been really let down by uh, people that were supposed to protect them in their life. Um, who mm. have been betrayed, and there's a commonality that they share, which is there's a part of them they want to believe, right? They want the idea that it's not just them out there, that there's other things working and supporting them, that the universe wants to support you. It wants to help you be that biggest version of you that you came here to be. But they're afraid because they don't want to be duped. They don't want to believe in something and then find out it wasn't true. And I always say, well, the only time you find that out is when you die. And when you die, you're not going to know. If it's not true, well, you don't know anything, right? But the truth is, is that people who believe in something are happier by far than people who don't so if you're it doesn't really matter in the end why not choose being happy yeah um robin and i have so robin's been working with this uh coach online for a while and she's a Oh, she's a bit of an everything coach, um, but she also does a lot of entrepreneurial coaching. And she has, and she's been she's been working for a big entrepreneurial coaching company for like fifteen years, and she's branched out on her own. And something she's starting to do is coaching entrepreneurial couples, because the dynamic in entrepreneurial couples is a little bit different than other couples. Is it? It's not. 
it's not that it's different. It has an added dimension to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, you've got all the same shit plus there's some yeah, other things to it. And I've one been of, and, there. It's not easy. <laughs> so we've just done a, a six-week course with her, but one of the things that she talked about is throwing money at a problem. Entrepreneurial, you know, like entrepreneurs, when they mm-hmm. get in, start getting successful, they just think they can throw money at problems. And she said, there are problems you can throw money at. Mm-hmm. Like get yourself a house cleaner, get yourself a gardener. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you can offload a certain amount of stuff to somebody else. But mm-hmm. then there's stuff that you can't offload to somebody else. You've got to do that, that work. And it's not mowing the lawn. <laughs> You know what I mean? And it was, it was interesting because it was, it was a, a live Zoom call with four other couples or something or other. And, and so, and you got to, you know, you got to share some of your stuff if you wanted to. Like she could always, um, you could always like not to, or she would mute, you know, mute the others and I, you could just talk to her one-on-one. I don't think that ever happened in the whole six weeks, but yeah, it was really interesting, the dynamic. And, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, when you were talking about money a minute ago, I was, I was just thinking about what she said about, you know, a lot of times when you get money, you think that throwing money at problems is the, the, the solution to all mm-hmm. problems. And it does make some of them go away, but uh, yeah. others, it, it doesn't. It does not. It does mm. not. Wow, this is this has been such fun. This has been such fun. We've got to get to some of your questions here. So one of the ones you chose is what is the luckiest thing that's ever happened to you? Okay. Well, um so this one kind of ties into I had a very um I had a pretty traumatic young adult years that um that led to a, me being in a situation where um i could have lost the rest of my life in my the freedom my freedom i could have lost that and i remember i remember being So maybe I, I'm trying to figure out how to say this without opening a whole other story. Um, But I ended up um, being with a much older man when I was a teenager and um, he was not a great person and um, he was ended up being basically a criminal and um I was arrested with him when I was in my early 20s and um got kind of lumped in with all of his stuff it's a long story but um I was facing 30 years in prison for all of the charges that they had um and and I you know, this is, they denied me bail. So I was moved to a lot of different little county jails and stuff. I was, this is 30 years ago. Right. And I remember talking to my grandmother on the phone. And I remember so clearly saying to her that, you know, I know it's awful that this happened, you know, and that I'm here 
But I'm so grateful because this has been like getting a bucket of ice water dumped on my head, right? Because it's like I was living in a dream and all of a sudden like I woke up like, oh, oh, you're not a spectator in your life. You are the primary person. You need to start making choices and not just letting life happen to you like you're a child. And I, I said to her, I really think that if this something so severe as this didn't happen, I could have been in that unconscious state for most of my life. And I think that that started me on being so conscious. And believe me, I made a lot more mistakes, but it was like, no. And I remember when I got, when all of that was behind me and I remember laying in bed one night and it was the first time I felt like I could take a breath. And I had a very clear thought came into my head, which said, okay, you have two choices. You can be angry about all this that happened to you and what you were drug into. You can be angry or you can live. But you can't do both. What one do you want to do? And I wanted to live. I had a second chance. I wanted to live. And I didn't have the education. I didn't have the support. I didn't, I was a single parent. I had so much, but I was alive and I was free. And that was suddenly the greatest gift I could ever have. And that's why I say like failures, like, well, if you looked at me on like paper, <laughs> if I was on paper, it'd be like, well, clearly this is one of the biggest failures, the choices that led you here. But, um, no. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm going to go to the, to the next one that everybody chooses. Mm-hmm. Because I imagine facing 30 years in jail, you would also be facing a lot of fear. What is your relationship like with fear now? Um, I look at fear as being transformational. It's, you know, depending, obviously, like, you know, you're getting robbed at gunpoint. That may not be the most transformational thing. But like the things that we fear in life being the most transformational. um, (laughs) Like, okay, so I when I got the job at that rehab, right, I mean, I was like I worked on myself. I like. You know, I, I had, my friends and I had done a documentary movie um, called American Street Kid about homeless youth in the U.S. And I, I was brought in later on in the production. I was one of the co-producers and Michael Looney, my friend, who's basically the writer and director. And so because of that, you know, I did all this research about the owner of 
the rehab. And I found an article where he said that what he would really love to do is to open a rehab for homeless kids. So, you know, I did my research. Okay. And I went in and I had my interview with him. And we just connected. We talked and talked. And then he hired me on the spot. And now inside, I am like Rocky on the steps. I am like, dun, 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 dun. you know, like I am jumping. I'm like, because I wanted the job so bad. I saw, I knew it was my job. I saw myself and I'm like, I know I can help. And, and so I'm still like all up here and all in my ventral vagal, <laughs> right? This is great. And, um, and he goes, so we just need to like, can you do HR today? Can you go through? I'm like, yeah, sure. You know? And he's like, okay, just, you know, basic things, you know, like, you know, drug tests, there's a background check. And I was like, all right, like, I felt the response, it was like being slammed to the mats. And then I went, oh, oh, this is the thing. This is the thing that I've been afraid of my whole life. I've played small my whole life because I was so afraid that I would want something so bad and someone would go, oh, oh, no, that's not for you. You have this past, like, no. And here I am. And it's happening right now. And like, I, I mean, I had a headache. I was like sweating. I was, little did I know that they only go back seven years. <laughs> you know, like it was never coming up. But that was like, and I remember I had to, I had to, I went through the whole HR thing and then I went back and because they wanted me to start right away before like all everything went through. And I thought like, well, that's just not an integrity. I can't do that. And so now I had to like, now I'm like shaking. I have to go up back to these people who thought it was so wonderful a few hours ago and sit down and be like, hey, um, you know, I had to plead guilty to a lot of things to get out of that situation, the plea deal. Right. So. <laughs> You know, I'm sitting across from the woman. I'm like, so um, I do have some things in the past. And she was like, well, okay, what, like a, you know, like a DUI? And I'm like, not exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I laid it all out for her. And then she's like, well, let me go talk to him. And then she goes and talks to the owner. And then she's like, okay, well, I think we, we're just going to see what happens and keep moving forward. And I'm like, okay. And as I was leaving, I see the guy. Going into another room, and he's just looking at me like. <laughs> and I left there, and I, you know, it just kind of reaffirmed to me. It was like, you know what? If I don't get this, I have finally faced that fear. And I don't care if they <clears throat> hire me or not, because now without that, I am nothing stopping me. That's it. You shared that thing. You. Yeah. Um, at the start of that, you said something about, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of fear or whatever, and you should, unless you're getting robbed at gunpoint. And 
it just reminded me of a story. So I was listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast with a guy named Boyd Varty. And Boyd Varty is a um, South African safari guy that has an amazing story. He's got a couple of amazing books. But he told a oh, story. Oh, I remember this. Yes. He told a story in that thing to where they had a house in Johannesburg, I think his parents did, and they were staying there, him and his mother and his sister were staying there, and he woke up one morning with a gun in his face. And Mm -hmm. these three guys had broken into the house and tied up his mum and his sister, and they wanted to know where the money was. And he basically said to them, like, there's no money here. And they lost it. They were furious, and they drug him downstairs, and they had him kneeling in the driveway, and they were about to kill him. They were going to shoot him in the head in the driveway, which is not unusual in some places in South Africa. Um, and he said that in, at that very moment, he kind of looked this guy in the eye and he said this peace came over him. And he just kind of released to the universe. He just kind of let go. And at that moment, the guy with the gun kind of got this startled look on his face like he had just woken up somewhere. He didn't know where he was. And he looked at his two friends and they looked at him and he looked at the gun in his hand. He looked at Boyd Vardy kneeling on the ground. They kind of looked around and it was like they'd just woken up there and like, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. And he said something to Boyd Vardy like, um, I need to go, but I don't know where my, uh, can you get inside? My car keys are inside. Can you go get them? So Boyd Vardy gets up, goes inside, gives the guy's car keys and he drives off. And I was talking on the weekend to some people about this, like, is there parallel universes running concurrently to the one we're in and just the choice we make, we, you know, you you skip from one to the other. Like, this guy was about to pop Boyd, Boyd Vardy in the head and then all of a mm-hmm. sudden, Boyd Vardy, it's like a test. It was like, and he let go and it's almost like you skip to a different channel mm-hmm. and these three robber guys kind of look at each other like, what a what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. But all the intention of what they're going to do and everything just went away. And it's like, that's one, I think that's one of the trippiest stories I've ever heard in my entire life. But is I, it that I, trippy? But don't, don't you have moments like that in your own life that maybe aren't on that scale? Oh, I had one on that scale. Did you? <laughs> oh, really? Time I did, I, at the time, looking back now, I don't want to say that's what happened, but I think that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Like I made a choice and we skipped tracks on the on the CD of life and mm-hmm. went to another track. Yes, and it was, it was very similar to that, but I hadn't ever looked at it that way until I heard that Boyd Vardy podcast. And when he said that, I'm like, oh, shit. If anybody's ever heard the, the story that I've told on the podcast about the gas station late at night okay. in in Michigan, there was a point where that guy reached around behind him like he was reaching into the waistband of his pocket, of his pants with his hand. And, it, and in the, that story I told, like right then, instead of, you know, I've always had a freeze response in scary situations, never a fight response. But I didn't have a fight or a freeze response. I had a... Okay. So this is how it happens. And then his hand came out from behind him with nothing in it. And at the time, I, uh, when I first told the story, when I told the story in the podcast, I said, yeah, I thought he must have had an itchy ass or something or other. Mm-hmm. But after listening to that Boyd Vardy podcast, it was like, 
Was that a test? And you can only really speculate, but yeah. yeah anyway, that's that's. Do you, do you know what I think? Sometimes, sometimes I wonder if <laughs> that's what if you want to say God, Spirit, Source, your angels just flooding into your body and holding you. Because that knowing, that, that just completely clarity almost, it, it almost feels otherworldly. Like you're connected to something, you're getting that from somewhere. Because you couldn't choose it. I mean, how could you actually choose? I mean, you can set yourself up for it because all the work you've done, right? But like, I don't know. There's something magic about it. Oh, there was something magic about that whole thing before I listened to the Boyd Fight podcast. And then there was like, oh, my God, that, there's another layer to whatever hell happened that night. So, yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you another question message what is your if you could if you could send a message to the world one that they would listen to what would that message be or your favorite quote that's the question or it could be both if you want to um yeah i really i really love that quote um Gosh, I wrote it down too. Like, but it was um, damn. I forget. So, but the quote is George George Bernard Shaw quote, where you know there's a line in there that says, "I want to be thoroughly used up when I die," and I love that quote because I think that life is just a big adventure. And I want to experience as much of it as possible. And I want other people to feel free to explore their life as well. And I believe that the, if you could cultivate one thing, if I would say, if I had one piece of advice, become curious about what makes you, you. I think that's the starting point. Become curious about, you know, don't judge, right? If you're highly reactive, if you get, not judging, why? Why? Would I choose that reaction if I, like, wasn't activated? Like, no, I'm kind of, I have shame around that. So you're not choosing it. So why is it there? Who put it there? Did you put it there? Somebody else put it there? What does it do for you? Do you feel like you have to shut people down way harder than they come at you so they don't hurt you again? They don't even try that. But then you push people away and you don't have connection. So become curious. That's, that's the start of all of it. That's the string that you pull. 
I feel like this. <laughs> I feel like the whole time I've been talking to you today, you've been talking about me. Not necessarily. You know, it's not. It's not. It's about me. But I mean, all this stuff is resonating with me like so, so much. As I've had some experiences recently, and it's almost like. <clears throat> We scheduled this podcast for today because I needed to hear everything you're saying right now. And two weeks ago, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have said the same thing as it's saying today. Will you, can I add one thing to that? Sure. Um, when I talked about things that, that we always have those moments when someone says something or we read a quote and it changes changes us and one of the things was a friend of mine I had told my whole story to this person who was a friend a really deep friend and she had another friend there so it was two two people and one of them looked at me and they said wow that's that's a lot he said um you're a real survivor and I remember thinking like yes I survived all that. I'm a survivor. That's how I see myself. Keep going, keep going, keep going, right? And she said, um, <clears throat> well, you know, the only problem with being a survivor is that you keep having to create situations to survive to be able to show your skills. She said, I choose to thrive in my life. And that moment rewired my brain, I swear to you, because, because of a lot of my childhood and growing up, I never viewed thriving as something that was a choice for me, right? That was what the kids who grew up in the good homes with the loving parents and the, you know, the dog and the car and the vacations and did all those. That's like thriving for them. That's obvious. But like, that's a choice that I can choose. Yeah. Yeah, I just wrote down, be a thriver, not a survivor. Well, it's true. Like, we keep making situations where we can survive them because that's where, you know, like what you focus on, you create, right? So if I identify as a survivor, I'm focusing on the world being a place that I need to survive. So the world's going to show up as a place that has chaos and I'm going to need to keep showing my skill of being able to survive it. You see that quote by Wayne Dyer all the time, right? And you change the way you, you change look at the things. way you look at things. Like things you look at change. And it's right? funny. I've had I've had a lot of those actually on the podcast. You know, I had, you know, when Jane Pike told me that, um, you know, that the freeze response when I needed it was it was my it was there to help me. It was my yes. best friend. It was not the enemy and so you know from then i from then on i stopped judging 
the freeze response that I'd had, you know, as a child and, you know, further back, you know, I kind of totally changed the story about all my relationship with it. Like, you know, with my relationship with that past freeze response, the freeze response, I was no longer looking at it negatively. I was looking at it like, hey, that was that was something I needed at the time. I don't, I can let go of that now, but I, at the time I needed it and it was the right thing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's been a few, I've, I've had a few of these on the podcast. I think I'm having one today, actually. Okay, what other questions did you have? Um, oh, you, you picked a question that no one else has picked in the entire, I don't know how many podcasts you're up to now, we're in the high 80s or early 90s or something or other. No one else has picked this question. And when you told me the question, well, you read the question out to me, I'm like, that's not one of my questions. <laughs> no, and then I looked it up and like, it is oh. one of my questions. It says, do you have any regrets that you'd be willing to share with the world? And what did you learn from those regrets? Um, I think I was attracted to that question because um, I, I have had a relationship with the term regret. And I, the thing about the word regret that I like to reframe is because it, to me, the word term regret implies that I am still stuck in some way internally at something in the past that happened that I can't accept that it happened. And I... I have made choices in my life, um, and I say that even when I, you know, I, I incorporate even when I was a teenager. When someone would say, "Well, you were a child," you know, but I, I made choices in my life, and those choices have hurt people that I love the most and care about. And in the classic term of regret, like. They would be the things that you would say, well, do you regret those choices? But I can't, I, I can't change the way time works. And they happened. They happened. And so I have to accept that they happened. I have to make amends where I can. But I have to find also how it's part of my story, of my path. Are, are you familiar with the idea of the hero's journey? Yeah, Joseph Campbell. Yeah. yeah, we all, we all are on our hero's journey. We're all the protagonist of our own story. And we all go down, right? We all fall. So that we have the opportunity to rise. And when you do that, every, that's why we always cheer, right? Everyone recognizes that in the other, right? You recognize that struggle. And when you're rising, that's the part that people really connect to. It's kind of like when Brene Brown talks about you know, vulnerability being viewed as courage. It feels like awful, like I'm dying. (laughs) 
I'm exposed, I'm weak, but it, it looks like courage to most people. Like we, we love that about you that you say that we love that. That makes me sit further in my chair. We all have a hero's journey. We have to, and it's about owning it and not trying to change it or fix it. You just have to understand that it's part of it. That's what I've done for myself. It's helped a lot. Wow. Well, we have one more question. And we've been talking for almost two hours and it's just zoomed by. I can't believe it. Um, and the one question is, <clears throat> what quality do you admire in other people? What quality do you admire most in other people? Um, accountability. I think, I think it takes a lot of courage the most courage to be accountable to be able to admit when you made a mistake to not project or blame or dodge um, and it's one of the core tenets of being a good leader too and a trustworthy person is if you're accountable not with beating yourself up and judge you know no self-flagellation. But just being able to listen and hear, understand, show up. There's been a lot of silences like that little one right there in this podcast because you've just, oh my goodness, you've blown me away. You know, what I... What I like to do in the podcast is figure out what people do that it's usually interesting and it's not a normal line of work and it's kind of something people would like to hear the story about. Well, you know, people would like to know how you got there and I would like to know how you got there and that was what I was planning to do today. But we didn't even go anywhere near unraveling your story because you just had so much wisdom to share that it was like, oh, this is not about how did you get from point A to point B. It Basically, you're just sharing the wisdom you've learnt along that way without giving any details about where you were living and what job you were doing, like what, mm-hmm. like that poem. I don't care what you do for a living. That poem was, mm-hmm. yeah, that poem spoke to me, even though I read it last night. I didn't read the second page of it last night because I, I thought that you'd sent me the same thing twice. Oh, wow, what an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. It's oh, been awesome. Had, so if people want to oh. So this has been people want to know more. Fun. Sorry, if people want to know more about you, how do they um what do they how do they find out more about you? Well, um the easiest email address I have is on the path equine at gmail.com. My website is ravensunranch.com. Sun being S U N. And on Instagram, at Raven Sun Ranch. Wow. Well, I just, I just can't thank you enough for coming on here today. This has been, 
Oh, one of the most amazing conversations I think I've ever had in my entire life. So thank you so much. Thank you for that. I mean, I, I was, I have had so many conversations with you already in my head. So, <laughs> I mean, there's not a single podcast that you do that I'm not like, oh, I did that too. I saw that too. I read that too. I heard that too. That's so cool. Yeah, I just spent, um, I just spent uh, four days in uh, Oregon at former podcast guest Stevie Delahunt's place doing a, a boot camp for the Gaucho Derby. So I'm going to do the Gaucho Derby in Argentina. And I went up there and did a, a boot camp. But what was really interesting is the other people in the boot camp, it seems like those challenging things like that attract a certain type of people. Like, have you read this book? Oh, yeah, I've read that book. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just like... Yeah, people that are fully on the on the on the path, as your email yeah. says, on the path. Equine dot com. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. So yeah, we better cut it off here. I I got looking at the time at about one thirty, an hour and thirty, and I thought, oh, I could go. This could go on forever. So I think we're just going <laughs> to cut it off there and let people sit and um, marinate in the wisdom you've had to share. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And for you guys at home, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Journey on Podcast. Thanks for being a part of the Journey on Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.